Hi, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of the Bay Street Capital Holdings podcast titled How Do You Do It and Why Should I Care? This series aims to highlight women doing amazing work in various industries. So today we are so lucky to be joined by Julie Gorty, Senior Vice President of Sustainable Investing at Impacts Asset Management. Hi, Julie. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you, Leila. Thank you. So let's start off with an introduction, I guess. How did you do it and why should I care? (laughs) So I work in sustainable investing and um, the way I got into it is not anybody else's roadmap. I got into it because a headhunter called me after a 20-year career in public service in the Congress and in nonprofits. But they sent me a job description that said, here's how you can save the world in the investment industry, how you can use money to make the world a more sustainable place. And it was intriguing. So I said, okay, let's give this a shot. And I'm still here. That was in 2000. So my, my story is pretty simple. Everything I've ever done in my work life has been about doing that one thing, saving the world. And mm. so for a while, I did that in public policy, and then I did it in environmental nonprofits, and now I do it in investment. That is awesome to hear. And I guess a follow-up for that would be, what inspired you to have a career in just saving the world in general? It never seemed like we were doing the world an unmitigated amount of good <laughs> by growing economically all the time. I, my, I got my PhD in economics and, you know, I, along the road, I studied a lot of things about the problems that we had created. And in, in economics, we call them externalities, which means mm-hmm. external to, you know, the economic system. But in fact, they were inside of it and they were causing harm. And I just wanted to fix that. It didn't seem right to be on earth without fixing the things that we broke. Mm-hmm. It's pretty simple. I know it sounds corny, but that really is what drove me. So it yeah, is fair it is. yeah, for sure. And what were the best resources, I guess, to help you further your career? Because you mentioned you were in the public sector and now you're in the private sector. So what kind of helped that transition? I think when you develop a competency based on knowledge and science and eternal learning, you can work anywhere. Maybe you can't work in, you know, the sort of fake news business. You know, that might be a little bit too a bridge too far. Yeah. But I didn't find the transition all that difficult, to be perfectly honest. I found that, you know, if you the skills that I learned both in school and in, you know, the jobs I had before I got into the investment industry really, you know, prepared me because my first Uh, my first move when I'm confronted with a new problem is I run home to mama. What do we know about it? Science is is mama, right? Mm -hmm. So what facts do we have? We should all, we can all come to different conclusions, but we should start with the same facts. Mm, That's very important. And you mentioned sort of facts being the driver of your work that you do, but are there any lessons that you wish you would have learned before starting the industry? Anything that the facts couldn't cover? You know, I, spent a lot of my career in public policy. I was, I worked in an office called uh, the Office of Technology Assessment. It was a congressional agency. It was killed Mm. in 1994. Um, But before that, we gave Congress um, advice on matters that involved a lot of science and technology. And I was the only economist or one of the only economists there. Mm. So everything with a dollar sign on it came to me. And I ended up having to do a lot of work on the financial industry. And I just hated it. I thought, You know, I kept telling people, look, economics and finance are different. They're not the same. I'm not Mm. an expert. And at one point, I think I actually vowed never to work in finance. 
And I think wow. I should never make a vow like that because <laughs> never say never, right? Anything yeah. can happen. And, and you don't want to be closed off to opportunities that come along just because they have a label on them that you thought you didn't like. Mm. Okay, that's very important. And I guess sort of how did you manage sort of that difficulty within the workplace? Well, I did what I always do is learning, right? So I I knew a lot about economics, but I didn't know much about finance. So I spent a couple of years working on the, it's a certification in finance called a CFA, a Chartered Financial Analyst. I didn't finish it, but it was a really quick way of getting up the learning curve and figuring out what finance was all about. So again, you know, lifelong learning is one of those things that it just never hurts. It always helps. Yeah, for sure. And over the span of your career, this is usually a tough question, but what would you say is your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? So it is, it's hard because I don't, you know, you fail at things all the time, right? If you set out to save the world because you only end up saving pieces. Mm. So one of the things that I worked on for a little while, this is more personal than than in my career, was the Equal Rights Amendment, and that never never got ratified. Um, so I I guess what I learned is that even if you don't, I mean, that thing is still alive, and it needs one or two more legislatures to ratify it. And you know, you just because you don't succeed when you thought you would doesn't mean that success is impossible. Mm. Another one I remember in the. Obama administration is the first in the first administration we all thought we were going to get a climate bill and in fact securities were beginning to be priced as if there would be one that would establish a cap and trade system for greenhouse gas emissions and then that didn't happen um, and now we have Biden who came into office with climate as his number as a number one priority so again you can't so failure is is temporary if you don't let it be permanent and I mm. wish I had earlier yeah and I guess also your sort of thesis of being a lifelong learner can come into this failure because you just constantly learn from what you make mistakes at yeah you're absolutely right that's awesome and what advice would you give to somebody who is wanting to pursue a career in sort of sustainable investing it is nice to know a few things about how financial markets work you don't have to get a CFA you can you know study finance you can there are some ways to get more up to speed. There are certifications in sustainable investing now that you can get from various places. So, you know, knowing what stocks and bonds are and how financial markets work and how securities are priced is something I learned on the job. Um, And it's not impossible, but it would be nice. It's nice to know that going in rather than sort of having to pull yourself up from the, from the basement. Mm. Um, It's nice to have a little bit of knowledge, but what you mostly need is, you know, passion and a respect for truth. Mm, agreed, agreed. And um, as you were saying earlier, I think there are just so many resources now on the internet and so many places to learn. I think that you can pick up finance, you know, from just the internet. Yeah. Yeah. You can, awesome. yeah. Yeah. And now the stage is yours for this question, but what is one common myth about your profession that you would like to debunk? So when I got into the field of sustainable investing, it was 2000. And at that point, it was called um, SRI, or Socially Responsible Investing. And the myth, I actually think of this myth as either a vampire or a zombie, um, was that if you do sustainable investing or if you do SRI, you are not going to get competitive returns, that you will 
your investments will make less money because you're investing in companies that are basically wasting shareholder resources by investing in things like um, pollution prevention and workforce training and diversity and things like that. That is so not true. <laughs> and it's taken the market something like 20 years to figure that out. It's actually taken a whole lot longer than that. Our firm started in 1971. So there have been many decades of this particular vampire getting up every night and sucking the brains out of, or well, zombies getting up and, and eating the brains of otherwise reasonable investors mm. and tricking them into thinking that their returns aren't going to be as good. There's plenty of evidence now to show that SRI not, it performs competitively, which means that sometimes it outperforms and sometimes it underperforms, but it's more likely to outperform than to underperform if you incorporate more information about the things that you're investing in. So that is, I mean, I think that vampire still gets up every night. Those zombies are still eating brains, but less of them. There are more people that have got their, you know, silver bullet or whatever they're, whatever you fight zombies with because mm -hmm. they know they've looked around and they're, and they have a financial advisor with a three-digit IQ who can tell them that they don't have to sac sacrifice returns. Mm. Okay. That, thank you for debunking that myth. I think that you've definitely cleared some air. Yeah. And yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'd love to learn more about you. So what have you read or listened to recently that's inspired you? So many cho choices. One of the things that, one of the best books ever was Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman. It, it actually won a Pulitzer or a Nobel or something mm -hmm. for that, but um, not Pulitzer. Gosh, sorry. Having a senior moment here. It is, what that teaches you is that your sort of snap judgments, the things that you think you know, it is always wise, if it's an important thing, it's always wise to test your own beliefs as rigorously as you do things that you don't believe in. You shouldn't just accept things because they appear to comport with your previously held ideas that are, are sort of instant judgments are often wrong. Um, and that is not a failure. It's a, you know, there's a reason that humans are wired that way, but it, it's really important Another thing that I read long ago and still keep reading is Desert Solitaire. And what that taught me is that basically it's, a, it's okay to be a fanatic about the right things. Mm -hmm. And then I remember Through the Looking Glass. Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is, it's a red queen world. You do have to run as fast as you can to stay in the same place. And I thought that was, that was always one of the more memorable parts of that book. And it always seemed right. And it still is. I like to read T.S. Eliot because of the power of beautiful expression. And then in terms of, you know, the things that are threatening our world that we need to get right, I read Collapse by Jared Diamond and The Weathermakers by Tim Flannery. That's awesome. You have some great book recommendations, which I feel like I need to start reading now. <laughs> <laughs> you can get lost in it. <laughs> I do. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so the next question is usually hard because I make people whittle it down to three, but who are three <laughs> people who have been the most influential to you in your life? The first one is my mom. My mother was raised at a time when women were expected to, when you defined a woman as being successful, it was because she had a good marriage, a clean home, and happy children. And she decided when my brother and I went to grammar school that she wanted to go to college, which was something her family, her father had, you know, it's just women don't need college, right? But my dad encouraged her to go to college. And so when I was finishing high school, she was finishing her PhD. Wow. And it was just, it was awe-inspiring that she could be the world's best mother and get a PhD at the same time. 
The other, besides which she was just the best person I've ever known. And then there's my daughter, who is also inspiring to me. She has, <laughs> when I came home from a business trip at one point when she was in high school, and she had was taking physics, and she had talked her father into letting her drop it. And I wielded the mighty hand of the bad mother and said, no, you, I'll get you a tutor, but you're not dropping this class. She ended up majoring in physics as an undergrad, and now she's working on a PhD in climate science at CU. Wow. And her passion for what she's doing and her interest in what she's doing is just awe-inspiring. But it isn't just her academic pursuit. She is also dive plunged into diversity and inclusion at CU. And she goes to faculty meetings and student meetings and, you know, represents the graduate students in forums about diversity and inclusion, particularly for women and minorities in science. And I really admire her for, you know, just really sort of fiercely fighting for what she believes in. Mm-hmm. And the third person was a, a former boss of mine when I worked for the Office of Technology Assessment, Audrey Byrne. And she was the one who, she got a PhD in plasma physics at MIT in the 60s, which sort of gives you wow. some idea of how unusual her career, career path was. She was the one who taught me to always go back to the science. No matter what you think you know, you know, consult <laughs> the science before you say you know it. So That is really cool to hear. Thank you for sharing. And then finally, to round off our conversation, at any point in your life, is there any advice that you wish you gave yourself? <laughs> Yeah, um, there are lots of times in my life that that I wish I had given myself this advice. But frankly, the best advice that I give now to other people was something that one of my professors gave me when I was leaving grad school. And I had two job offers. One was a very well-trodden path among graduates at that institution. And the other was something no one had ever done at our institution. And I was considering both and agonizing and, you know, I was telling Andy about this and he finally said, Julie, you don't have to decide what you're going to do for the rest of your life. You need just to decide what to do next. Mm. And I keep giving myself that advice, which has sort of enabled me to make these career changes that, you know, could have been really threatening at the time. You know, it's kind of like, oh, God, am I getting into something I'm not going to love is I feel like I'm jumping off a cliff. And then you sort of remember that Wiley Coyote jumped off a whole lot of cliffs and he lived through it. You just get up and keep running. (laughs) That's great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Um, And so, yeah, that rounds off our conversation. So thank you so much, Julie, for taking the time to speak with me today. It was absolutely wonderful to hear your story and to get to know you better. Thank you, Layla. I really appreciate your asking me to be here. Thank you. Bye. Bye.